she was um, very independent from an early age, and she felt that what dance could do is bring the body into the cultural context that it should be in, that the body and mind are one, and that the full expression of the soul can be seen through movement. She was a disciple of Walt Whitman and um, Frederick Nietzsche, and their writings really exposed to her the revolutionary ideas of what she could do with the body. And um, Whitman's Song of Myself, she said she called her religion, and uh, Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy, she referred to as her Bible. So she really followed their readings very closely. She was, from the beginning, a child who cut her own path. Her mother came home when uh, Isadora was about five years old and found her surrounded by young children from the neighborhood and she was teaching them how to wave their arms. And her mom asked her what she was doing and she said, this is my dance school. And from that point on, she just began gathering children and teaching them to dance in her own way. And she studied burlesque dancing as well as Del Sart um, when she was younger and people were very impressed by her performance. And so um, a perf an older performer said, oh, you should take her to ballet. So Isadora went to the ballet master in the Bay Area at the time and lasted all of three classes before she quit for arguing with the instructor about why she had to dance on her toes and why she had to do these very prescribed exercises that he wanted her to do. She felt that it was that's not what she wanted. She wanted to be free and to move how she liked. So she would often just go outside and dance um, in nature and she said that she danced naked on the beach all the time that she was growing up in San Francisco. When she was 10, she decided that her dance school had grown so large that she needed to focus on it full time. She convinced her mother to quit, to let her quit school, yes, at the age of 10 and she full time focused on teaching dance. Um, she lied about her age. She went around to the town and told people that she was 16, and they believed her, I guess. And she made money for the family teaching dance. And she and her sister really, they said they were starting the new foundations of dance, the new technique. And later when Isadora was talking about this new foundation, this new technique, she said, we had no idea what we were doing. We just did what we felt. We taught improv improvisation. We knew we didn't want the kids to look just like us, and we wanted everyone to find themselves through movement. So they became very, very popular, and um, Isadora went on to start her professional performing career in Chicago in about 1896, and she was performing in different theaters and doing pantomime parts in large plays and things like that, and she just wasn't fulfilled by the, the rigidness of that type of performing, and she really wanted to do her own shows. And so she decided that she thought Europe might be a better venue for her. So in 1899, she takes off for Europe with her family in tow. And the Duncan family was just an interesting bunch all the way around. Isadora was the youngest of four. She had uh, two, an older sister and then two brothers in the middle. And they decided that they were going to rebuild the Acropolis and just kind of started and then realized that, well, one, they didn't have enough money, and two, there was no way to get plumbing out to where they were. They just were sort of lived on this grandiose scale, and Isadora was always, you know, coming up with some scheme or something and starting um, a, a new venture. She really reinvented the way dance was looked at and the way 
it could be talked about. And she really brought to the public the idea that the body has many discourses that it could be discussed with. In her dancing, she really focused on simple movements. It wasn't about creating this really structured or codified movement style. It was really about self-expression. And for her, she, she decided that the center of movement, the birth of movement comes from the solar plexus. And that, that in relating to divinity and just sort of this outward reach and expression um, is where all of the movement came from for her. So she's really worked with walking, running, skipping, hopping, leaping, turning. Very simple, simple steps. But for her, it wasn't about choreographing a step. It was about this narrative force and this self-expression and the emotion that she could bring to the audience. So we're going to watch um, the three graces now. We only have two graces here today. Um, you can decide which grace we're missing. Um, and they are wearing somewhat of what would be considered a traditional Isadora Duncan tunic. So that was Megan Moore and Lauren Steinke um, as two graces, two of the, the three. Isadora said, I spent long days and nights in the studio seeking that dance which might be the divine expression of the human spirit through the medium of the body's movement. For hours I would stand quite still, my two hands folded between my breast, covering the solar plexus. I was seeking and finally discovered the central spring of all movement, the crater of motor power, the unity from which all diversions of movement are born, the mirror of vision, the creation of dance. Um, when I first read this, I was read that, that quote, I was in graduate school, and I thought, I couldn't stand in the studio for any amount of time um, and patiently wait for 
the birth of movement or anything to come to me. I would have been, you know, off doing other things or just making up a dance. And so I was really um, enthralled by the fact that she had that kind of patience to really, really wait until she was inspired to move. And I mean, I wish I wish I knew more of what, what was going on in her head at that time of how she could be that patient or, or what was it that she fi that finally welled up in her um, to cause her to move. And she felt that um, art should be religious in the sense of it should be heightened in the, the eyes of society. And that without this sort of respect and place in society that dance was, or art period was merely merchandise to be sold. And she really hated the commercial aspect of dancing. Several of her students were ostracized from um, the inner circle for doing commercial performances as they got older. Um, she wouldn't speak to them again because she didn't believe in that type of work. And so um, she was very, very particular in how she wanted to be presented and the things that she had to do. Early on in her career, they did many um, salon performances where they would go into the homes of rich ladies at tea time and do performances. And Isadora would take um, these nice uh, gray, blue kind of backdrops and they would perform the pieces. And um, it helped rise, helped bring notoriety to her, but she despised it. She despised having to go into people's homes and do this for money. And um, I can totally relate to not understanding how art and money go together. Um, as my husband tries to lecture me all the time about like you have to think about the money aspect. So on that side of being an artist, I totally understand how she would think that it just should, it should just happen. It should just be that way. Like I want to make art and I want it to be in this place. And so there we go. Um, when she was in Europe, she began to find a lot of success and she was, did a tour to Russia in 1905, and there she was seen by Michael Fokine, and she had a huge impact on him and his creation of the new ballet, and he worked with the Ballet Russe and really sort of changed the way dance was presented and choreographed, costumed, the length of it, just every aspect. And from the new ballet, Balanchine created neoclassical ballet. So even though Isadora was so against ballet, there was still a huge influence that she had in classical ballet and how it is how it is today. And um, she felt that classical ballet was too rigid and too strict and that it didn't give enough thought to the ebb and flow of breath and that it wasn't related to nature and that it had been created at a time and it was no longer valid. And she was very, very specific about this. What I try and make sure the students understand is that she didn't create her form against ballet. She just she created what she wanted to create, and it was against ballet. But it wasn't as though she set out to be against something. She didn't first watch ballet and then say, "No, I'm not going to do it." She began this journey before she knew of ballet, and so what she created really came from from herself, and. Um, she did wear the Greek tunic. She was very interested in classical Greek art and felt that the Greeks had some higher understanding of where art should be and how it should be presented and looked at. And in 1896 was when the Olympics were reinstated. So at the time there was a huge sort of resurgence of, of Greek art and classical ideas and things like that. And when she was in London is where she really began to study the Greek art at the museums and things. Um, Duncan often performed solos. Uh, occasionally she would perform with her students, but mainly she performed solos. 
But she said, I never performed a solo. It was always a duet with me and Space. And um, I, I, I love that because it is so true that even when you are on stage by yourself, there are so many other forces at play and you're interacting with space and time and all of these things. So I really appreciate that she, from the beginning of her work, was able to think about those things. And I think that for most of us, as we grow to be choreographers, that's when we start thinking about those things. But she really had a knack for how to use the body in space and for the substance of the space. So um, many of her dances, when they're light and ethereal, you feel as if they are in the clouds. And they're, they're struggling and searching. There's a piece, Mother, that she does. And it's all pounding into the ground. And you just sort of feel the oppression of the space. And so I think her movement qualities really reflected sort of the atmosphere that she wanted the dance to be seen in. Um, her pieces in, in the beginning were more lyrical and um, ethereal. And as tragedy and World War I and things came along, she began to sort of change her outlook on um, her pieces. And we're going to see a piece called The Furies. Um, which was actually done fairly early, 1905, I believe, and it was performed only by her students as a group. She would perform it as a solo, and um, I think that's all I'll say right now. So The Furies was, was actually choreographed in 1906, and um, that was um, Courtney Becker, Meredith Bouvier, Megan Brandt, Bromlin Fitzgerald, Rachel Lingrich, and Amanda Tilka. Um, Isadora was very interested in educating young dancers, and she really felt that that was one of her missions, obviously, since she started her own school um, fairly early in her life. Uh, she had this idea of establishing schools all over the world to carry on her vision. And so in 1904, she started her first school in Germany. And um, the schools would open and close depending on finances. She had schools in Germany, Paris, and Russia and actually for a while received uh, government funding in Russia uh, for her school. And she really wanted to teach children, the poor children, because she felt that it was really important for their development into uh, full and whole beings. And she often would just sort of have a troop of young ladies following her around. And she adopted six of those ladies, and they were called the Isadorables by the press. And, and they really kept her legacy alive after Isadora. The, the later part of her life was not so successful. And it was really thanks to the Isadorables that we have what we have of Isadora's uh, legacy. Um, Irma, Anna, and Maria, Teresa, were the three who really kept dancing, who kept teaching her repertory, passing it down, and um, started the Isadora Duncan Foundation. Um, Isadora was very influential in just culture at the time. Many paintings, she's referenced in books, she's referenced in poems. Um, she is, um, you can find watercolor prints of her still <clears throat> to this day. And she was also a, an early feminist and she really got this from her mom. Her parents were divorced when she was a baby and her mother was very, very adamant that the, the, you be able to take care of yourself. You don't need to rely on a man. And Isadora decided she did not believe in marriage and wasn't going to ever do it. She did eventually get married um, later in life, but she felt that a woman should be able to have a child when she chose, and she had two children out of wedlock. 
and actually three, one died um, right after he was born a few days. Her other two children, Deidre and Patrick, um, were in a car, the car stalls, and the driver gets out to crank the car, didn't put on the emergency brake, and the children with their nanny um, drowned in the Sin River. So, and so Isadora's life was riddled by tragedies such as this. She herself died in a car accident also. Um, she had this habit of wearing really long scarves. And so she, uh, with true Isadora Duncan Flair, gets into a car, says, I go off to glory, and um, her scarf gets caught in the wheel of the car. And that's in 1927. That's how she died. And she was um, buried by her children in Paris. Um, her autobiography was, was published the same year of her death in 1927. And um, Isadora felt that because she was so blessed by um, the gods, in her words, uh, with the beauty and the grace that she was able to bring, she expected to have tragedy. And she said, my life is always surrounded by flame. So she um, sort of, in a way, was able to use the pain of her life to help her create her art. And she um, really left, when I think about what she left, I think of um, Mary Vigmon and the essence and the emotion of dance. And Trisha Brown just in being a rebel and painting your own way. And today with all of the idea of yoga and somatics and just finding the natural body, I think Isadora has sort of permeated everything that's come after her in the modern dance world. And some people call her the mother of modern dance, the grandmother of modern dance, the high priestess of modern dance. Um, and I don't, I don't think it matters what you call her as long as we continue to acknowledge her place in, in what we've become. And she was so adamant in creating your own way and creating your own path. And we, in dance history, where we've been talking and reading about other artists who have said that, don't do what your teachers do. Create your own path. Create your own way. And I think that a lot of what we still say is what Isadora said and what she would say to us today if she was around. Um, for her, dance was about the body, and the body was the most important reality. She felt it was a template for life and that it was the source of all knowledge. And she believed that the truth of the body lay in its harmony with nature. And she presented the body as the meeting ground where discourses of science, nature, art, and metaphysics were found not to be so distant relatives. And she really was able to bring the body into social, cultural, and political life. And I think that a lot of contemporary artists were still trying to do that today. So it's interesting how everything continues to circle and evolve and come around. And it's fantastic when we can learn historical pieces because it's great to get to experience that, but it's also fantastic to remember that we haven't come so far, even though we've gone a really long way. So I just want to thank the dancers for jumping in and performing today, and um, we'll open the floor up for questions. We can, and Ma, <laughs> thanks. I'm wondering about the music. Did she always perform to music? Most generally, she did uh, perform to music. A lot of people felt that her pieces were improvised, and her the choreographed works were very set. They had specific music that went to them. Improvisation, with or without music, generally took place in the classroom or just in sort of a larger social setting. 
did she uh, draw on the classical music? Uh, did she ever have anyone write music for she her? She didn't have music composed. She did use the classics, Schubert, Chopin, Gluck. Um, the list of the composers that she used is, is quite large. If you go on the Isadora Duncan Foundation page, they have a list of just the classical music that she used, and it's pretty extensive. Yeah, music is, is half of the emotion. If you've ever watched a movie with the soundtrack gone, the right. music in the background gone, half the emotion is gone. Right, and she really paired them up together. Um, she wasn't known for musical visualization, but it is more of bringing the music to life and bringing the, yeah, the emotional essence of the music out, most definitely. Yeah, but she really focused on classical, classical music. She was active, obviously, in a time that was uh, tr very tra uh, transitory for the role uh, of women and the identity of women. And like, uh, what sort of adversity did she face, like, it, with regards to the fact that she was a woman in that time? Um, Isadora was thought to be completely scandalous and not um, fit for for proper society at all. She danced uncorseted. She, um, brassiers weren't heavily marketed at that point, not till the 1920s, so she just took her corset off and went about her business. Um, she danced barefoot, which was seen as completely inappropriate. She, yeah, having children out of wedlock. She was really sort of not part of the mainstream culture whatsoever, but I think because it was such a, a time of change and growth that there was a large population of artists who were uh, doing similar things in their own way to her. So she was not without community um, at, in her time. Hi. <laughs> um, this is on music, too. Uh, how long did it take for music to, uh, for dance to go its own way, not to be together? In modern dance. In modern dance. I think it's gone back and forth throughout the times. Going in with Martha Graham and Doris Humphrey right after this, they began to have music composed for them. So the dance would come first often and then the music would be added to that. So, and I think that as the time has gone on, dancers still choose many different ways to work with music. And some people still work really specifically with a score and the structure and using that music. Many other people create the dance totally in silence and then add music as a, just a layer on. So you could have sort of the Merce Cunningham approach where the dancers never hear the music until they're on stage. Um, contemporary choreographer Mark Morris is huge into musical visualization and he understands all the nuances of the music before he even begins to choreograph. So I think it still you know, depends on the choreographer's choice as to what they do. Did she have any uh, men in her dance troops? No. There was a, a slight experiment at one point to have men in the schools, boys in the schools. Um, and I'm not sure why that didn't work out, but it was a pretty all female. I guess they just couldn't handle all the women, so, yeah. Uh, did Isadora Duncan uh, travel to Asia, and did she have any influence on dance in Asia? I do not believe so. That I think she was mainly in Europe. She may have done a, a tour to Asia I'm not aware of. Um, Ruth St. Dennis was heavily influenced by, uh, she's a contemporary of Isadora Duncan, she was heavily influenced by Oriental culture and her troupe did many tours to Asia. She was just really performing in all of the large cities throughout Europe and I believe it was probably some, you know, Presario who organized the sort of events, but she was well received in 
Russia, very well received. That is interesting. Um, so that even though they were so, you know, sort of very specific in what their dance was, they were able to recognize um, the difference and be really open to supporting it. So one thing I just want to mention about the music that I didn't say when I was talking is that her mother was a piano player. And so Isadora grew up with music in the house and she really knew music very, very well. So um, she studied piano when she was younger and just always had her mom playing and teaching lessons. So she was well aware of the classics and of, of what good music was. Everything seems so natural. Did the women wear makeup that danced for her? I don't know if the women did. Isadora didn't begin to wear makeup until she was much older to sort of hide her wrinkles, and then she would use a little pancake foundation. But um, for the most part, it was pretty, pretty natural. Although I just I read something that did say that they believed that to keep the the sort of idea that she wanted of the performer that she probably did shave her armpits. That was a point that the author made. So, which I had never thought of before, but um, <laughs> so. I was struck by your statement about Isidore interacting with space and time. This parallels what Einstein was saying at the same time. Exactly. Did she have contact with people in the physics community? I'm sure she did. Um, there was so much change and just things sort of, both by osmosis and by collaboration being created, but she was really, she was a smart, smart woman, and she was very aware of what was going on around her. So I'm sure that those, those thoughts definitely influenced her in what was going on. Um, she would, she, even though she quit school at the age of 10, she was very well read and very interested in philosophy and science and um, how they contributed to the world in which she lived. So I don't, I don't have it read anything, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that that would have been something that was she was interested in, for sure. This is fascinating. I was wondering, you told about how as a young girl she was teaching dance classes. Did she choreograph as a girl? Are there any pieces that we know of? No, not, not that we know of. She was, I think, really experimenting with freedom and improvisation at that point, though she probably created dances for her students to to our, our moves for them to do, but I, the first piece we have of choreography, specific choreography, is in about 1900. Alicia, you mentioned that these dances are preserved by notation. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how dance notation works, what it looks like, and how choreographers set their dances down to preserve them. Sure. Um, the Duncan pieces have been preserved in two different types of notation, and one on the back table you can sort of look through and see. They're, Similar to music scores, the symbols um, relate to steps or the body parts. I read Laban notation, which was created by disciples of Rudolf von Laban, and it has um, the score reads up, so you read in this manner, so the staff is turned sort of upways, and it has a center line, and that starts with the center of the body, and you can write, you write for the foot, you can write for the knee joint. You can write very specifically what every little part of the body's doing, like down to the pinky finger and the way the head should be inclined, the spatial path that the body should move in, and the movement quality that the body should have. So it's really, really detailed, very, very specific. Takes a really um, patient person 
to write out a dance. So even these dances that we saw, which are fairly um, what we call simple steps, to notate that takes a very, very long time. And so then what you do is get the score and you sort of try and figure out where you're supposed to go and what each body part is supposed to do. And you kind of get this shell or structure. And then you sort of have to um, put life into it with the ideas that you have about that choreographer and what they would have wanted expressed in their dances. So it's um, something that is not taught quite as much these days because with the DVDs and everything sort of being preserved in a different way. But for a while it was the only way that we had to sort of write down this really ephemeral art form was to try and, and notate it. As she taught then, if she was teaching her students, did she have warm, structured warm-ups, or was it all just dance and continue to dance? Yeah, it was that no, no set warm-ups. Um, she would just come up with ideas that she wanted about movement and really dance. What's interesting is that after her, the Isadorables, Irma and Mar Maria Teresa, they had very specific steps that they taught. So nowadays, if you take a Duncan class, you do have very specific steps that you work on and you work on the running and you work on your um, attitude jumping and you know all of these really specific steps that they've taken from her dances. But she herself was all about um, dancing in the moment and being free, yeah, in class, yeah. Do you, did she have any relationship to you with me? She studied it a little bit when she was younger. It was all kind of going on Similar, you know, in the late 1800s, there was this huge sort of um, fitness awakening and everyone was doing, you know, statue posing and eurythmics and gymnastics and things like that. So that definitely, I think that definitely influenced her choices in movement, that they were, what, they were more athletic than necessarily um, what was going on in, other, in the skirt dancing or burlesque dancing at the time. And I think that she was probably very moved by sort of that fitness movement, the rhythmics and the gymnastics movement, for sure. I see a similarity in the movements of Tai Chi to her dance. I have seen all people who regularly go out in Asian cities and dance in the gardens. And I would think it would be a very therapeutic um, thing for Western all people. Yeah, definitely. We like to go on the lawn on campus and do Tai Chi. <laughs> yeah. She did not keep dancing public. Well, she did for a really long time. She died when she was 50. Um, her last tour to the United States was in 22-23. And she was in kind of a state of crisis in her life. At that point, she had married um, a man who was younger than her, a, a Russian poet. And he um, actually ended up committing suicide. And she was living in Paris and um, was having an alcohol problem. And, and so I'm not sure exactly what her final date of performance off the top of my head would have been, but pro it was probably a year or two before her death. Yeah. What's so interesting about her movement is that when the students first learn it or they see it, they all say, well, that looks like ballet. Um, and so it's kind of hard for them to sort of wrap their mind around how it's, it was so revolutionary at the time that it was not like ballet, that because of her, that's where some of that influence comes in. And then also, I'm sure partly because of our training now, the way we perform it and the way we present it and look at it has probably changed a lot from, from what it looked like in, in Isadora's day. But 
Um, it would be interesting to hear what she said about dance <laughs> at this time. What, do you, what can you tell us about the reviews that she got in her own time? What did people write and say about her? And I'm also interested in the reviews of her as a solo performer, how people described her movement style. Um, she was a mesmerizing performer. And people loved to, to see her perform. And it is said that um, you, it was an, like an otherworldly experience to, to witness Isadora performing. And um, the reviews, of course, were mixed. She was very, very praised um, in her early years in Europe and things like that. So um, I, I think what she was so good at doing was not showing a step, but really being there in her soul and really moving and wanting to move the audience. And I think that that's a really special type of performer and not something that is t can be taught. You have to find that from somewhere within. And I think all of her improvising as a child and just really working and learning her body is probably what made her such an inspiring performer. Do you think that her influence um, in the world of male modern dance is just as uh, important as female? Mm, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know. Um, Ted Sean was so influential with the male dancers at the time. Um, it's interesting. The male question is something that I even struggle with in my own work because I feel like I, I'm not making a work about being a woman, but I am a woman and that it's so inherent in my movement qualities that I'm not able to necessarily feel like I work really well with men. And I've had a couple of boys in my company and, and they do find they look great, but it's just something that I struggle with that I don't know how if you are so, um, I, I feel like her movement was so much about being a woman and in this womanly body that I don't know how that would have translated the same to a man. I do think that probably the ideas of creating your own way and um, you know changing and things like that influenced male artists at the time but I, I don't I don't know that it has the same sort of impact if you sort of divide by genders that way yeah are there any videos of her yes there are and they're all on YouTube so <laughs> you can Google Isadora and there's some great clips of her of early dancing yes on on that have been preserved. Were there photographs of her in publications of the time? Most definitely. She, uh, there's a beautiful, the one actually that's on the um, Facebook page for anybody who's on Facebook with her and her, the gorgeous tunic, that was the cover of her book. Um, she loved to be photographed and um, was the, the work that she does was very photogenic in a way for the camera with the tunics and things like that. So. There's pictures of her um, definitely in Greece where she was, where she went, when she went there. And yeah, so there's actually a lot of photographs and also renderings, artist renderings of Isadora from that time. I had another question. Um, you said she was inspired by classical Greek uh, culture and, and art. What did she actually know of, tangibly, of uh, Greek art and dance, let's say? Or was she using her imagination to fill in a lot of those blanks? She was definitely using her imagination in the beginning. When she started, she hadn't actually studied Greek culture really at all. It was maybe some different pieces that she had seen. Later, after she was already choreographing, she really did then 
look at Greek art and she would take the poses and sort of say, well, what would have gotten to this position? And, and she sort of used those as templates for creating movement for herself. Um, she had sort of this ideal um, world that she thought Greek culture was and the way that they uh, represented um, sort of this ideal way of living for her. And she didn't want to necessarily imitate the Greeks, but she really felt that they had something right and that she wanted to sort of take from that. And so she did do a lot of looking at urns and vases and pictures and, and you know, the three graces, their, their pose comes right from um, one of the Greek vases. So, yeah. But in the beginning, not so much. She just kind of jumped off a cliff and, you know, went for it. Um first part of my question is, do you know that she was involved at all with like Rudolf Steiner and the Theosophists because she thought that art yeah. should be involved with religion? So, mm -hmm. um, and um, taking that into your personal experience, do you find that when you dance uh, with her steps or in a style that uh, is directly from her teachings, do you feel like you are invoking a deeper, more spiritual sort of energy within yourself rather than a more structured uh, dance form? Um, I believe that when you have sort of a transformative performance experience, that it definitely feels that way, that there's some other amazing energy that's sort of carrying you through and surrounding you. Um, I think when you're just studying and learning, not so much, because um, it is so can be so tedious. But um, I, yeah, I absolutely believe in sort of the the spiritual um, essence that dance presents and has with it. And that um, I think when you tap into that as a performer, that there's something that's so vulnerable and beautiful and um, present about that type of performing that. It's just, it's breathtaking. I mean, th I think that's really when movement can take your breath away, when it has that sort of quality. Before we end, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit about the dance program here at Penn State sure. and what you're doing. I think you have an upcoming performance you might want to uh, plug and, okay. and your, your own choreography and where people can learn more and maybe get, uh, get info about your upcoming works. Sure. Um, we are part of the School of Theater, just we're the dance program, and we have uh, dance minors and some majors through integrative arts. We have a show coming up May 1st at the State College High South Auditorium, which will present student choreography and senior projects. And um, so it'll be a large, eclectic, and very interesting show. We perform once or twice a semester on campus. And our website is not usually updated so well. Um, but the, generally on the School of Theater, if you go on the call board, there's performances listed there. And we're in some of the, you know, the community papers. We tend to try and put our stuff on and things like that. We are a small but eclectic, um, interesting program full of dancers. And they do random things like the Duncan dance. And then we do really contemporary work and, you know, try and fit some other things in there. So, yeah, we're a little hodgepodge of everything. So. Um. If any of the dancers are still here, I'd like to welcome them to come back up. And um, we'd like to thank you all for a wonderful presentation today. Thanks, Alicia. Join me in a round of applause for our wonderful. <laughs> and Alicia, we have a.
Oh, thank you. <laughs> we have a research oh, unplugged cool. mug for you. <laughs> Mugs for you too. <laughs> Thank you all very much. This was a real treat today, and <laughs> thanks to everybody for coming out. This is, believe it or not, the second to last of our uh, spring season of Research Unplugged. It went very fast this year. Um, next uh, week on Wednesday, we have a Research Unplugged um, special event on uh, ancient plants with Professor Claude DePamphilus, who's the head of the International Floral Genome Project and it happens to fall on Earth Day. So if you want to come out and do something really special for Earth Day, we may have a few local master gardeners here in attendance as well. Maybe you can pick their brains for your own garden, and we'll definitely have some plant samples from the Penn State uh, greenhouses. So um, please try to join us next Wednesday at noon for that. And once again, a round of applause for Alicia and her wonderful dancers.